Welcome to another edition of Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Hey, Braden Gall. I'm Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan on Instagram at Aaron underscore Dugan. There you have it. Big show planned today. Josh Ward going to join us from WNML in Knoxville to talk about the meltdown currently happening in the 865 area code in East Tennessee. We're also going to talk with Dave Matter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as how many times Aaron is Missouri football going to be one of the primary focuses of a show, but they've got a huge game with the Florida Gators, and they're a pretty good football team, it turns out. So we're going to talk with Dave coming up in a little bit. I can't so, wait for that. Absolutely. So stick stick around for both of those interviews as well. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about with Auburn and LSU, Kentucky, uh, after a week after we praised Mark Stoops, they've gotten lay an egg. We got Bama. We got Tennessee. We got a lot of stuff to get to. I do have to ask you first, though, Aaron, before we get to any of that. By the way, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. You almost forgot. Share. Tell all your friends that it's a thing that you listen to. And tell everyone. Like. Yes. So if you do that and you do listen to the show, which I'm assuming all of you do, last week at the very end, we try to give you guys a little, a little extra at the end. Get to know Aaron a little bit. Get to know me a little bit. Mostly just Aaron. And, you know, you've had a loose undercarriage problem now that's sort of been a weekly problem that we've discussed on the show. It's ongoing. And you went to get it fixed before last week's episode. And you told a story at the end of last week's episode about a gentleman who may have used your cell phone number. There's a time and a place to contact a woman when acquiring her number. And generally, when she is trying to get her car fixed and or buy a car from you, that is probably not one of those times. That's the latest into this explanation. You've ever said the word car, and it was weirdly <laughs> vague for a long time during that. Yes, she's got a busted car, needs to get a new car, went to get a new car, guy used her phone number, and then at the end of the story, he asked if he could ask you out, essentially. Yeah, which you said at least he asked. Which I think is a good move, because if he didn't ask and then used your cell phone, no, cell phone number Correct. through nefarious means of acquisition, that would then I think you have he has no chance. I don't know if I've ever used the phrase abuse of power in reference <laughs> to a sales uh, car salesman, yes. but this might be the first time. Um, a very good observation by you. He did reach back out right after we finished recording the show last week, but it was very professional. He just wanted to follow up about the car. So it wasn't anything about like going out thankfully. I was pretty busy last week and the beginning were all weekend really and I just said I you know needed some time to figure it out and I'm right now I'm in my cousin's car. Yeah you drove up in somebody else's car which is why I had to ask you about it on the show today. Yeah the undercarriage is not fixed. Okay. It's still sitting we, at my apartment. We need an under, undercarriage update. Yeah it's, it's not good. Um, it's gonna have to be fully replaced which is what we all feared. <laughs> it's a very dangerous procedure. <laughs> um, so I, I'm just glad that he stayed professional. It means there's a chance you might still buy a car from him and probably not go have drinks with him. That hopefully, all sounds right. Yes. Hopefully he listens to the show. Chivalry is not as dead as we thought. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, so you want to talk some college football? I want to show you something first that I made. Okay. That I didn't tell you that I made. You have a surprise. I do. Okay. It's not the same vibe as last week with the Alabama, Georgia hidden camera sort of thing. But which may or may not have been illegal. We're not sure. But it does. It's no, I'm telling you, it's not illegal. I know the rules. Okay, okay. That's what I do for a living. Um, this is a it is a compilation, but it was a voluntary compilation by people in my life 
and their description of what they're feeling like as Tennessee fans right now. Because I didn't want to speak on their behalf. I don't know how they're feeling. I know they have a very complex relationship with collegiate sports and specifically the volunteers. And I think they need to speak for themselves. All right, let's take a listen. (sighs) Do I have to? It's frustrating, man. It's frustrating. Tennessee is the ultimate blue baller of college football. Really failed to deliver when it matters most. My dad thought it was a great idea to share with me that I was conceived in celebration after the Vols win in the 88 Peach Bowl. According to him, I'm a VSC or a Vol since conception. Big orange blood runs deep. (sighs) It's really a one-sided relationship i give them my all they give me nothing in return which we've got harrison bailey sitting there and pruitt won't say anything we just want to know is he that bad like did we screw up again i just feel like the kid who every year his dad doesn't show up for his birthday party i feel like i've been training my whole life for this situation crumbled it's just a lack of execution i do know what 98 feels like It feels like heaven, innocent hope. And I know, like I know that it's happened every year, but when it starts rolling around and the party decorations come out, I start thinking maybe he'll show. And then I'm sitting there crying at the fucking birthday cake. And I just, I I want off the ride. I'm, I, I want off the ride. Being a Vol fan is kind of like getting your wisdom teeth out. Right after the surgery, you're living in this false reality. And uh, right now, being a Vols fan just feels like purgatory, constantly trying to escape to the other side. I think we turn it around against Arkansas. We, we might get our ass kicked by them, too. <sighs> Look, we might have lost three in a row, but we got an opportunity to come out here and win out. All right? And that's what we're going to do. When you have that hope, you never give up on family, no matter how dysfunctional it may be. Go Vols. Well, um... We were going to talk Bama to start the show, Aaron, and I, I guess we can. We're just going to do it from the other perspective, and I'm not sure what we need to add to that as far as what took place in Knoxville, what's taking place in Knoxville, what has happened in Knoxville for a decade and a half. I think that sort of sums it all up. First of all, thank you to your friends for being, for being willing to put themselves through that, mm-hmm. uh, honestly. I, that, there's some sorrow in there, man. Honestly, it, like there's one guy who's got some father issues. One hundred percent. And I think I kind of chalked it up to exposure therapy. I feel like it's good for them to talk about it. I mean, I didn't. I did it more for the entertainment value than you know the the therapy side. But along the way, I realized that these people need to be seeing someone. <laughs> Hi, I'm a Tennessee fan. My name is Braden, and I'm a Tennessee fan, and I've been winless now for nine years. So emotional abuse. Yeah. Uh, so again, we'll we'll get. I guess we'll get to the Bama side of this. Let's start with Tennessee then, because here we are. And I really, again, all those voices is <laughs> Volson's conception's pretty good. Blue baller, VSC. pretty good. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I do appreciate that, and 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 your friends taking the time to express themselves and their feelings. But again, let me throw out some stats, and this is only going to make you Vols feel even worse about yourselves. And Sorry. So here's a couple numbers just that you need to know. Through 30 games, which is where Jeremy Pruitt's at, Jeremy Pruitt has lost 12 times by 21 points or more. Butch Jones, through 30 games, had lost six times. Derek Dooley, through 30 games, had lost six times by 21 or more. So Jeremy Pruitt has done as much as both of them combined. 
in the last 10 quarters, Aaron, if Tennessee's opponents didn't take a single snap, Tennessee would still be on offense. Tennessee would still be losing 28 to 24. They've given up four defensive touchdowns over the last 10 quarters. That's Kentucky, Alabama, and the second half against Georgia. If they did not allow their, if the opponent punted on first down on every drive, Tennessee would still have lost those 10 quarters. It's 10 quarters. When you put it like that, it just hits different. And here's the other thing. Jeremy Pruitt after the game, you know, again, it's all coach speak. I don't really get, I don't know how you feel, Aaron. I don't really get that pissed off at coaches for saying silly stuff at press conferences. They're not, you know, they're paid to coach football games, you know, you know, the whole like, well, we're discouraged, but we, you know, we feel like we're closing the gap or whatever. And I'm like, you lost by 31 to Alabama. You know what Butch Jones did in his third year against Alabama? He lost by five on the road in Tuscaloosa to a Derrick Henry football team in Alabama. They were very close. They actually had closed the gap. I think he's a better coach than Butch Jones. But what are we doing? That's a lot of bad losing. It's a lot of bad losing, and that's not the best thing to say when you lose. What you just said, the closing the gap phraseology, if you will, is regardless, that's still, it's not a rivalry game. I said that right, which go me. Um, in a, but in a sense, that's always a big game. Tennessee and Alabama is, you know, kind of a competitive game. People always show up for that. That's looked forward to every year when it's not 2020 um, to be there. And you you can't call that closing the gap. If you think that, just keep it in your head. Yeah. Don't say that out loud. Talk about, you know, what you've done on the recruiting side. Talk about the future. Talk about literally anything else because you're going to get your head bitten off. And this isn't even us biting his head off. Mm. Fine bomb bit his head off. Yeah, we're, we're in the, like, I can try to spin it here. And I can say, look, they were terrible last year to start the year one and four. And they rebounded and had a really good close to the season. So is it possible that that could happen again? Sure. Could Harrison Bailey be the answer at quarterback and we could see flashes of brilliance from a young player who gets put into the lineup? Sure. Are the games more winnable now because you've got Georgia and Bama behind you? Sure. That's all possible. How much confidence do you have in that happening again this year? I don't know. It's it's a 10-game conference schedule. It's harder. It's 2020. There's a pandemic. Like, it's just, I, I don't, I, it, it feels closer and closer to just sort of punting on the season and, and hoping that that it was just an asterisk year and that year four is the real year that kind of counts as year three. And you, you know what I mean? Like, yes. And, and I think that's okay. I don't think, I don't think fans are being too cuddly or warm and fuzzy with Jeremy Pruitt to say, all right, I, I'm not going to worry about this year. Let's focus on next year. But you know, at the same time, there's an sec football game happening. So fans aren't exactly going to take it lightly. So. No, they're not. And 2020 is hard enough. Just don't call losing by 31, closing the gap. It's a lesson learned. Although, yeah. again, it is coach speak. I mean, things come out of their mouth. You know, it's taken out of context, whatever. But just save yourself. And, and you're going to hear this from Josh Ward. And so I'll save a little bit of what I'm going to say here because I'm, I think Josh is going to say it better than I am. But essentially, he's going to do a lot of comparing of Butch and Jeremy Pruitt to, to where they were in their different phases of their careers. Two and a half years into Butch Jones's career versus two and a half years into Jeremy Pruitt's career. Where were they? Where where did they start? Where are they going? And Josh will give you a lot of perspective as to what's happening with Knoxville. So stick around for that interview. We don't need to, again, the two stats, all you need is that's the 12th time that Jeremy Pruitt has lost by three touchdowns or more. And, and he's coached in 30 games. So that's almost half of them, Aaron. <laughs> uh, Alabama is pretty freaking awesome and nothing new there. They did lose Jalen Waddell. And 
I don't know about you. I, I don't think losing Jalen Waddle, who I think is the most explosive and dynamic player in the entire country, I don't think it matters in the regular season. I, I think if you get to Atlanta and you play in an SEC championship game, you're playing Clemson and Ohio State in the playoff game, I think once the margins get much smaller, then I could see it mattering that he's not playing. But I don't think it matters in the regular season, honestly. And that's just a, a disgusting statement about where Alabama is, frankly. Yes, it says a lot about the system and you know how – how tied up they really are when you can stick someone like Bolden into that spot. And granted, he's still extremely talented. Like, let's not be, let's not be fooled. He's crazy good. But Waddle is just that standout guy. I mean, Saban compared him to Allen Iverson. You can't replace that talent. But when you can put someone else in there, even if it's, you know, still a very talented player, but it's not him and have him succeed and not only have him succeed, you really, they really didn't, you know, they kind of went off without a hitch. Like, they didn't really run into a lot of issues. So, oh, you mean in Knoxville? <laughs> I this it's still didn't it's, see any didn't it, see any issues there either. Nope it it ran the way that they they wanted it to, and it, you're right. It says a lot about where they are as a team because that's a lot of talent to lose to kind of you know show up in the same way. Not even blink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Najee Harris was exceptional. He's getting better and better. Looks more and more like a, a, a feature back in the NFL every time you see him. Now, again, Tennessee, that's one of the worst tackling displays I've seen in a long time. They had no desire to tackle him on Saturday. Again, I'm not even sure what the, what the point of analyzing the game is. Like, really, honestly. Do you know who's tied with LSU for the most touchdowns this year? <laughs> is it, Here's is it, a hint. It's it, not a team. Najee Harris? Najee Harris. I think he has five times as many touchdowns as Vanderbilt. Almost. 14 and Vanderbilt has three. I, yeah, I don't know what to add to Alabama, frankly. Like, again, they're going to play Mississippi State this week. You know, Mississippi State under Dan Mullen had a lot of really good teams and never challenged. They've played terrible football lately. I, this is a this is thoughts and prayers for Mississippi State. Again, I, I'd like to say, all right, Mike Leach, let's see you do something. Let's see you throw the ball around and test that Nick Saban secondary. But, like, I don't – I have no faith that that's going to happen. What a stark difference this was from – the Mississippi State at the beginning of the season. Stark difference. I see what you did there. Oh, I didn't even mean to. Yeah, I see. I see. God, I'm a genius and I don't even know it. Yep. That's so, that's the word I would use. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we were, I mean, I was pretty high on, I think everyone was surprised and high on them at the very beginning, but that's no longer playing out that way. Yeah. Mississippi State. No bueno. All right. We'll get to Texas A&M, Arkansas, which is a really good football game. Missouri, Florida, pretty good football game. Georgia has a nice test on the road this week against Kentucky. We'll get to all of them. But I, I do want to talk about the tier below them. You've, you've got Bama, Georgia, Florida, A&M, in whatever order you want to put them in, in the top 10 in the AP poll. And then there's a huge gap to the next team. Auburn, I believe, is 31st in the rankings if you you know extrapolate out the AP poll. There's a huge gap between the top four and everybody else. And I'd have no clue who the fifth best team is. Aaron, if you're doing a power ranking here, I think you can make a case for four or five different teams. Who belongs at number five? Who is the fifth best team in the league right now if you had to, to do the power ranking? I'm going Mizzou. Um, they... which, is, which is insane. <laughs> but, like, it, you're not wrong. Like, Yeah, I mean, not record-wise. Obviously, you. I mean, as we saw, or you said, Auburn technically is next but Auburn's gotten away by the skin of their teeth in a couple of games their record looks better than to me than they are Mizzou I would argue is slightly on the other side of that 
I think that their record isn't quite as good as they look. I mean, Connor Bazelak is showing up like he is not a freshman. He looks mature beyond his years. He's a great addition to that offense, obviously. And if you look at the UK game, obviously they're sick of losing to Kentucky. So if we look back at that, they I guess they lost the last five matchups. They and, won this and one. And in some like heartbreaking fashion, too. I think an untimed down a couple years ago. Heartbreaking losses. Just, heart, just soul crushing. Yeah. And they had twice. I think the stat was they had twice as many points against Kentucky than a, Kentucky had allowed in their last two games. So against that defense, that says yeah. something about the way their offense is working. They had five different receivers who caught a pass. O- only halfway into the second quarter, they'd already used five receivers. I remember hearing that when I was watching the game. It's like, wow, you're, you have six minutes left in the second quarter. I've already used five receivers. So they're doing a really good job of switching it up. And obviously we watched Larry Roundtree and Tyler Beatty, and they're such comfortable targets or, you know, p- uh, playmakers with Connor Bazelak. He looks very relaxed and and I think that says a lot about not only his maturity, but about the dynamic of their offense and about the way their offensive line is performing and just his ability to stay calm. That really, we always talk about how the coaching staff, you know, they kind of dictate the mood of the team. Well, the quarterback plays that same role on the field. His energy is what gets dictated down to everybody else. And being a true freshman and being able to keep that composure is extremely impressive and their defense, I mean, I don't have to go all into it, but their defense only allowed three points in the first three quarters. Yeah, he's a, he's a redshirt freshman, but your point, yeah, is still, redshirt. Your, your point is still valid. And defensively, I think they were on the field for like 37 snaps, which is... 40 abs- minutes having the ball. That's an absurdly low number. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, again, normally you're talking 70, 80 snaps yep. in a normal offensive game plan. Now, I, I have a I, That's a very good case, Aaron. I, Thank I, you. Oh, to, and no turnovers. There you go. See, hard to argue with that. And if he had started in... You know, they're not going to beat Bama, but if he had started in the Tennessee game or they played this week, Tennessee and Missouri, I think the outcome might be a little different. But but again, is it Kentucky? Well, they just lost to Mizzou. You know, it's not Tennessee. Auburn probably gets the nod by default because they've won the games. But like, have they really (laughs) like Arkansas probably could be in that slot if the officials had done it correctly and handled the Bo Nix spike correctly. Last week, it was the official not acknowledging that the player you know, touch the football and the ensuing kickoff yeah. when Ole Miss took the lead. And, and so Auburn, they, they keep winning, but they keep looking worse every time I see them. And so I don't, I, again, I don't feel, I think LSU could be the answer by the end of the year. Finley had a really nice game as a true freshman. They scored a bunch of points. You know, I, I could see LSU being the fifth best team. I don't want to make the case for Missouri because you did a great job, A, and Dave Matter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch is going to talk a lot about Missouri, give you some insight into what Eli Drinkowitz's philosophy is, why it's working, why it's successful, the inner workings of the the Missouri program, and their very strange relationship with Arkansas now because they sort of have a rivalry there because they've been sort of like chosen to be rivals by the SEC in crossover play, but they're next to each other geographically. And Barry Odom, the former Missouri head coach, is, the, is the, now the D.C., doing really good things at Arkansas. So so Dave's going to explain all that. I think I can make the case for LSU. Okay, and, let's hear it. And if they go on the road and beat Auburn this weekend, LSU, to me, is has got the most potential to grow and improve over the course of the season. When you look at the talent level and you look at the pieces, LSU could look a lot better as the year goes along. That That's... There's not a lot of analysis there, but that's I, – I don't know. if that, that, that would be my argument for LSU. Auburn needs to prove that it belongs there, in my opinion. I think the advantage that those two teams have over Missouri, not to negate my own case, but 
is that they've been there before and you can there is something to say for that that's an intangible factor but that also I know I talk about behavior on the sidelines a lot but there's no replacement for having been there in those big close matchups especially postseason stuff you I I doubt you're going to catch Nick Saban's guys taunting another team and surrounding (laughs) them in a huddle on the sidelines so there's kind of no replacement for you know the like my, my my drunk friend said last week, act like you've been places. Act like you've been anywhere. Just anywhere. <laughs> Just anywhere. One of my favorite lines, if you missed it, go check out the first five minutes of the show last week <laughs> for Aaron's drunken friends during the Bama-Georgia game. They don't I, drink. What's interesting is Missouri's got a big chance this weekend against Florida, and very strange things have happened in that game. I don't know why Florida would be any different than they've been already. They have not practiced at all since the COVID issues. The deep, like in order for a defense to regain its footing, be better along the line of scrimmage, be better at tackling, all the things we want to see Florida do, you have to be practicing, and they haven't been practicing. So I don't know why Florida would look any different. It still may be good enough to beat Missouri because you know, again, you're at home. Kyle Trask in in the offenses, they came out of the box unpacked and ready to go in week one. I think that'll still be the case against Missouri. So it's up to Missouri to make enough plays to win. But I don't know why Florida's defense would be better. Without any, they, they've practiced one time in two weeks. I don't, I don't know why Florida's defense will, will make all these big improvements that we expected if they practiced. We've talked about this before too. But reps on defense, especially, are important. Just that day to day lining up and, and getting your reps in. So, I, I think you make a strong point there. And I also think that with the way Florida looks on offense, I mean they are they are offense. So Mizzou will have to definitely. You know, maybe this comes down to turnovers again. Maybe Mizzou has to capitalize and put some points on the board if Florida turns the ball over. Um, but it's it's going to take a strong offensive effort from Mizzou to put up as many points as Florida. And and you know, can they hold can they hold Florida's offense? You know, yeah, to a reasonable amount of points. I, I think if Florida beats Missouri and Georgia beats Kentucky, which is sort of what's expected to happen, if LSU goes on the road and beats Auburn, then I think you could put LSU at five. Yeah. If Auburn beats LSU, and and even though they got lucky against Arkansas, got lucky against um, against Ole Miss, you know you probably still have to leave Auburn at five, especially considering Missouri might. You know, right now we're picking Florida to win that game. So if Mizzou goes and surprises us and beats Florida on the road, which they've done in the past, and you'll hear Dave later sort of explain all the different years that they've gone and played very strange football games with each other, then all of a sudden you're looking at Missouri even more than just fifth place. You're looking at Missouri as as the second best team in the in the East potentially, which is crazy. It is crazy. Yeah, you're right. If Auburn wins, it's hard to argue, even though they've been kind of you know, they've gotten some bones thrown their way. LSU wins on the road. That's a very telling. Now, if they're both sloppy and Mizzou plays a really good game and beats Florida, I, I'm still yes, Sam Mizzou. LSU and Auburn are fa- is fascinating too. LSU's offense putting up some huge numbers last week for for the Tigers against against South Carolina in a relatively easy win. So you know we'll see what the freshman quarterback can do in an encore performance on the road. Generally, the home team has won in this series. It's been very very close. Even though neither team is ranked, it's a good game. It's it's one of the most exciting games of the week in the SEC. But it's also Gus Malzahn is struggling, and LSU, we were wondering if the bottom could fall out. They responded last week. So I think it's a really big show-me game about what are you guys made of. Like, what are you made of, LSU? What are you made of, Auburn? Show us what you're made of because there's not a lot to play for right now. I think Auburn has a lot to lose. They lose this, and people are going to harp on, you know, well, they didn't even – they shouldn't have even won those last couple of games either. But I think if they win, people will shut up. 
I think a little that, bit. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And, and it, it quiets people a little bit. And certainly Gus needs needs the victories. Yes, he does. There, there's no question about that. His vest was back. Well, maybe, the, re- maybe the referee saw that. There's something to it. And, well, and we can discuss. We'll get into Lane Kiffin getting <laughs> fined and, and still tweeting. Put the tweeter machine down, coach. Can we please? Coach, Lane's Kiffy. filling my, my... You want to do that now? We can. He's filling All my right. Steve Spurrier void. Like the a great give point. no shits. I've missed that so much. And Lane is giving it back to us. Uh, well, you're our senior social media correspondent. So no. So he, here was, and this was from Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic, I believe, who just sort of like live tweeted Lane Kiffin's tweets, yes. which was excellent of her. Great job. He got fined. T- so he had, he retweet. Who, what did he retweet over the weekend? Basically like, so he got fined $25,000 because he retweeted something about how the officials were terrible at the end of the Auburn Ole Miss game, right? So they blew the call. The kickoff clearly touched the player's hand. Yeah. They they gave the ball back to Auburn. Auburn went down the field. Bo Nix hit Seth Williams on a big big touchdown, and, and they won the game. It should have been Ole Miss's ball with like five minutes to go and a lead. So, you know, I guess there was an, like some – like, again, the SEC officiating has come out and said it was the wrong call. Like, we screwed up. And Lane's basically just – continuing to agree with the fact that the SEC got it wrong. But every time he does that, he's breaking the, the rules. So he's getting fined $25,000 and then keeps tweeting about it. <laughs> he can't stop. No, it was so it was the Clarion Ledger. Is that what it is? I don't remember what it was, but I do know what was – there was two things were in the same press release, like the fining of Kiffin and yes. the admittance right. that the call was wrong was like all in the same press release, which is kind of confusing. So I have an actual serious conversation that I want to have with you about this. That'll be refreshing. After the, the silly part of it. So like Lane Kiffin's timeline was like just you know trying to save some money emoji. Didn't work. Fire. Sorry, sorry Knox College Fund gone. Uh, is what, he sober during I these? don't know. I don't think he is. At one so. point, he's like, where can I find 25,000 pennies? And I wanted to say, maybe a calculator would be better. Like, you need to He was out. trying to make a joke and say 250,000 pennies, but really, that was also wrong. Exactly. Well, right. It's 2.5 million pennies. Oh, Again, calculator is what I think he needs, not... The tweeter machine. Well, you Put talk about how he, um, you're, you have it in front of you. Will you talk about how he corrected himself, like tweeted at himself with asterisks each time? Oh, yeah. He, so, okay. <laughs> so that, that was at 8.45 p.m. Where can I find 25,000 pennies? Very, <laughs> a few minutes later. Uh, asterisk 250,000. Lane Kiffin tweets at Lane Kiffin. And then he does it again to himself. <laughs> asterisk 2.5 million. He's replying to his own tweet. He's just hammered. He doesn't care. We're not reporting that. That's alleged. He said that he had to uh, do a five-minute power yoga class before going into the press conference because he's afraid he was going to say stuff he shouldn't say, although he's no stranger to that. So, There's Whatever. already a t-shirt, I believe, that it says Penny Lane, which is a great, That's great good. line. And it's got 25,000, 250,000, 2.5 million on it. You know someone's you gonna you know someone's gonna dress up as Penny Lane for Halloween, but wear like some old Miss gear. Yes. Be a combo. That is fantastic. So no, I, I am totally here for Lane Kiffin live tweeting the SEC officials. Now here's a question. here's an honest, serious conversation about football. Okay. So this is a legitimate question. I understand why officials are kept away from the media. And that coaches can't comment. I, I understand why it's done. You need to sort of let the – they need to be above reproach sort of within the conference. And I understand that. Certainly fans can can blather on about, about them all they want. The media, you and I can comment on how about officiating is. That's fine. I do think it would actually help. 
because we know that the NFL and college football has these have these grades for officials where they it's 98% of the time they got the call right or whatever. Like I actually think it would help fans back off the officials to be honest with you. If you actually had transparency and you could see the statistics that were available for all these officials on how good they were, how bad they were, and then know which crew got which game because they're ranked right in order of, of accuracy and, and dependability. And frankly, if, if coaches were allowed to talk about it, I know some would go off and abuse the privilege. But at the same time, then what you could do is you can have an open conversation about something that went wrong. And again, maybe you still find a guy for being... I don't know, outlandish or over the top or just demonstrative for no reason. But I, I do think there could be value that if you put the right rules in place to allow officiating to come like into the conversation more on their own, where they have their own voices yeah, and their own statistics and their own everything. I think there could actually be value in that. I'm sure a coach will abuse it somehow, but like, you know what I'm saying? I do. I, that's a really interesting thought. And you're right. It, it wouldn't be to put them on a pedestal necessarily for us to us and coaches and fans to verbally abuse them. We already you do that see, anyway. Like. Right. And you would see how much they actually get right because we only remember the wrong stuff. They're right a lot. We just remember those big and sometimes, unfortunately, game defining plays that they get wrong or they, you know, have the chance to watch something back and they choose not to. Those things are going to stick out in our mind. But if we saw how how accurate they really are, a lot of them, you're right, they might be backed off of how cool would it be if we had a a a post-game official press conference right and let them kind of air it out or the press oh that that would be horrible i I mean again here all you need is for the sec to like again i I don't know i would take the job in two seconds like hey Braden, you get to do pr for the officials and you get to answer questions for the officials it would like i'm sorry it would not be that difficult to to have a meeting have a call with greg sankey after the game go into a press conference and answer every question about what, what the calls were. Yeah. Like, and you say, Hey, we got that. A coach goes in there and goes, yeah, we got that wrong. Players go in there and go, yeah, I threw that pass incorrectly. It's true. You know, like a, an official could easily go in there and be like, look, we were at 96% on holding tonight. We missed those two calls. They were big. We, you know, we're going to, we're going to study the tape. And we're going to get better next week. You know, see, I just did it. I just did the, right. the press conference right there. So I just think it would add some value to the fans. A human factor that does not <laughs> exist right now. Right. And they're expected to be robots. And let's just be honest, we're, we're five weeks into a pandemic-shortened season, and Mike Leach is already a total swashbuckler, and Lane Kiffin is getting fined for his Twitter account. Let's just, we knew this was going to happen. Thank God that it's here. Can I say, can I admit something? I don't know what swashbuckler means. Um, I don't have a definition of swashbuckler. Should I, I, I would it? say a swashbuckler is like Captain Jack Sparrow, who in the modern day would be a guy who just like walks into a bar all super confident and swag. He's got a lot of swag. And this he just is a like, good definition. And he just so like, is yours. He just like owns it. You know, he's got a lot of swag. Swashbuckler. A person who engages in daring and romantic adventures with bravado and flamboyance. Well, that's pretty close. Yeah, you were. This one is, it's an artsier, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but whatever. More refined. I get it. Definition. No, that's a very clear. Yeah. He's it's a, an image. He's a swashbuckler. It's, I think it's a phrase. Re- re- the reason I use it around yeah, Mike like Leach feather, is he's a, like he's feather a, in your belt. He's a pirate. Like that's yeah. he wrote a book about, you know, he's a pirate. So he's a pirate. that's why I use the word swashbuckling. That's cool. He beat LSU. He swashbuck he swashbuckled his way to a victory, and now he's basically shit the bed since then. So I wish I was a pirate. But either way, interesting in the SEC, right? Right. Do, Sorry, I'm thinking about how do we if make I was you a pirate. How do we make you a pirate? I don't know. I think I've got the attitude already, but obviously I don't have the you know anything else? Anything else. <laughs> A boat? I don't have anything. A sword? No. 
Damn. I'm far from gun. F- further from being a pirate than I ever could have imagined. I don't have anything. We I think should... we, we Halloween's coming up this weekend. <laughs> I know. We'll have you dress I'll come up as back a in as one on Tuesday. Uh, all right. You want to do Arkansas A&M or Georgia Kentucky? Because I think Kentucky and, and Arkansas are both teams that we would have in this conversation about who the fifth best team is in the league. And and I think both of these games are sort of being written off as Georgia and A&M victories. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready to say that yet. I think Georgia will go into Kentucky and win. Arkansas has routinely played A&M very well. I know A&M has dominated the series overall in terms of wins and losses, but Arkansas has routinely made them, you know, fourth quarter, overtime. It's been a crazy football game. Generally, it's been played at Jerry's World as well in Dallas, so this time it's different. But I I just – I look at those two games, and I still – I think there's plenty of intrigue there between Georgia and Kentucky and Arkansas and A&M. Let's go Arkansas and A&M first. All right, what you got? You know, Arkansas, you, we can't ignore the fact that they didn't have, they didn't beat a conference team for two seasons and they beat two this year. So this is not going to be a gimme for AM at all. However, this will be important for AM. They're going to want to win just like everyone always does. But a convincing victory, you know, with this game and then the remaining games could actually, it could be a difference maker for them, you know later down the line if things keep going as they're going for the college football playoff committee there's there's no one on their schedule that's ranked left on their schedule they'll be favored in every game all their opponents keep getting worse technically and they're only a 12 point favorite this is interesting to me because i want to see what i love about this game is arkansas defensively has made you work for everything you've gotten and what do we know about a&m and kellen mon that they're wildly inconsistent and we need to see consistency from them before we start believing that they belong in that conversation you're talking about, which is college football playoff at the end of the year. This is one of those games where if you if you want to show us that the win over Florida was real, show us that Mond has in fact developed, this is the game you, you do it in. You're at home, you're supposed to win, and it's a pretty quality defense. Show us that you belong. You have to be consistent because Arkansas's ability, again, I know I keep talking about turnovers, but that has been such a difference maker in so many games this year over I mean, for everyone on both sides. And so, you know, they picked off six passes against Ole Miss. There's just a lot of – there's a lot of optimism around the Arkansas program. A lot of people are getting behind it. Those players are – you know, they have their head in the right spot. They have each other's back. And A&M, yes, you're right. Kellen Mond and his receiving core is going to have to be, you know, consistent and get to the ball because yeah. you, you can't turn over the ball against Arkansas. I like A&M, but I think Arkansas keeps it really close. I give, think so, too. Give me the hogs and the points there, but I like A&M to continue moving along. Georgia-Kentucky, and the last time Georgia played at Kentucky two years ago, it was for the SEC East Championship, and it was the biggest game in Commonwealth Stadium history, and they got beat. I want to say fourth quarter, Georgia kind of pulled away in that game. But, I, listen, I know this is also a two-touchdown spread. Georgia's coming off a bye week. We all want to know what the quarterback situation looks like for Georgia – but this is not a this is not a soft defense. We we've talked about Stoops. I know we gave him a ton of praise last week on the show, and then they went out and got beat by Missouri. But that's what happens in twenty twenty. So I, I don't I'm not picking Kentucky to win this game, but I I, I do want to see that if Stetson Bennett is the guy, what, what do you look like on the road against a good defense? Going off of that, like Stoops talked about his you know they didn't play well against Missouri. They didn't show up the way that they really wanted to. But again, that's not a typical Kentucky losing to normal Missouri. Missouri. Obviously, I just made a case for me thinking that they're fifth best in the conference, but that's not right. That doesn't have the same gravity that losing to Missouri would in the past have had. And, you know, he, I think that Kentucky and Stoops are going to make some adjustments. 
maybe not easy adjustments, but adjustments that will make a difference in, you know, this matchup against Georgia. I mean, Kentucky is not going to beat Georgia, but that doesn't mean (laughs) someone asked was someone asked Stoops that that, uh, if he was going to throw away his whole game plan, which, by the way, and Braden, talk me through this. Is that question ever even valid? No one throws you throw away your whole game plan like no. I, the only time – it's a good question. The only time I can think of, and this is just sort of off the top of my head here, what when would that a question be appropriate? And the only time I can think of it is if you were to play two teams – if you were to play the same team in almost back-to-back situations and you, okay. got, and you got crushed in the first game. So, like, let's say Kirby Smart Auburn a couple years ago, they go down to Auburn and they get, they get rolled up on the planes – like, you know, pretty easily, right? It was like, mm-hmm. well, they played each other again in the SEC championship game like three weeks later. And even then, three weeks isn't... Right. You know, if it's it's almost like the only time I can think of that question being like, hey, coach, did you throw everything <laughs> you've practiced all season away this week? The only time that could be appropriate is if you just you tried all of that, got boat raced, and had to play that team again. And that doesn't happen in college football. Right. So that's about all I got for you. Yeah, fundamentals always in place, but maybe that... I don't know. I can't I, think of a situation. Can you? I no, mean, I no, I really can't. Um, Coach Stoops, you've spent eight years building a program. It's been successful for you. You gonna throw it all the way now? <laughs> I know you're, that you're right. There's that something about dumb. that question that just like doesn't sit totally right with me. All questions, not all questions, are valid. I'm not gonna say that, but that uh, one doesn't. There's tons of bad media <laughs> questions. I know. I was trying to make a sweeping politically no. correct statement, but I, I, I no, there's it. there's trashy media people out there. Yeah, for sure. That do a terrible job, that are lazy. Generally, they're, they're, I'm going to upset you here, but TV guy and TV girl don't exactly ask the best questions in press conferences. Let's move on. What else should we talk about? All right. So do you want to get to our interviews and then get to some personal stuff? Or did you have something else you want to add? No. Did we talk enough about Georgia? You know, just Georgia needs to find, I think they'll still beat Kentucky, but they, they need to further develop their identity on offense and Kirby Smart said, you know, that's all defined by the defenses we go up against. So if they can continue to find themselves, use a game like this to, you know, continue to strengthen that offensive identity, I think that will that needs to happen as they move down the, the pipe. Could not have said it better myself. Totally agree with everything you just said. Wow. All right. What a day. There you have it. Dave Matter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch going to join us in a few minutes. But when we come back, Josh Ward from WNML. In Knoxville, covering the meltdown taking place in the 865. Josh, thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time this morning. First of all, try to give us sort of the emotional state of the Tennessee Volunteer fan base right now. Like, how how close are we to the edge of the, the cliff's face here? It's kind of all over the place, and Tennessee fans have been in very critical states, I would say, in the past in terms of their emotional point, because I think we've reached the stage where fans are starting to argue amongst themselves. Is this Jeremy Pruitt's fault? Is this Butch Jones' fault? I've started to get some more Mike Hamilton messages sent my way. He's been gone almost a decade, but uh, fans are still blaming him, and and that's I think that's just frustration from all of it. I think fans are are tired of what they experienced with Derek Dooley and Butch Jones and are probably afraid that they're going to experience it with 
Jeremy Pruitt next. And uh, this was a season where I know everything's different with COVID-19 and all that stuff, but on the field, fans were expecting Tennessee would be competitive with Georgia, Alabama, Florida, and maybe pull off an upset along the way. And instead, they were blown out by Kentucky. They're blown out again by Georgia and Alabama. And you feel like things are right where they were three years ago, or you fear that that's the case. So I'm hearing from fans who are upset that I'm being too negative about Jeremy Pruitt, but I'm also seeing fans go at other fans for being too supportive of Jeremy Pruitt here halfway through the season. Where do you see the performances against Georgia and Alabama? Is it fair to use those as the barometers for where this program should be? Certainly in year one, you don't. In year two, maybe you don't. In year three, is it okay to start using the best teams in the league as the barometer? Because like you said, that's what fans expected. I'm not sure that was a reasonable expectation based on talent and roster and situation. So how how much of their current three-game losing streak by like a total of 70 points, how much of that is the opponents and how much of that do you hang around the team itself and say, you guys should have done better? Well, I think it should all go together. If this was a season where you were expecting to see where you stood against Georgia and Alabama, Florida's coming up later, of course. I mean, just two weeks ago, Tennessee had an eight-game winning streak. And we were talking about, okay, now you get a chance to see what Tennessee looks like against Georgia. And we found out. And then two weeks later, you see against Alabama. So should Tennessee be compared to Georgia and Alabama right now? I would say no, but that's because you're not just on their level. And fans expected to at least be closer. I don't think too many fans went into this season saying, Tennessee's going to win the East. Tennessee's going to challenge Alabama for the SEC title. But game in, game out, I think fans expected to be more competitive. Fans did not expect to be losing multiple games by 21 to 31 points like they have the last three weeks. And uh, it starts with the quarterback position where I think a lot of fans are frustrated, but now it's starting to spread throughout the roster. And, and some fans are saying, wait a minute, well, where's our, our defensive backfield and our defensive line? And is the offensive line as good as we thought? How does that compare to Georgia and Alabama? And that's also still not really close. And I think that's frustrating because it's, it's probably a reminder that next year, Tennessee's probably not winning an SEC title. And I think by year four, a lot of fans did expect Tennessee fans to compete for an SEC championship. Obviously, they have time to prove me wrong. But right now, if I'm sitting here saying, I do not think that Tennessee's going to win an SEC title, and I don't think that Tennessee's going to contend for one next year, what would your rebuttal be to that? I think that's part of the issue, too, is that fans are now looking forward and seeing that what they have been waiting on is now further away than what they really thought. A couple of things that stand out. So I I want you to take them sort of one at a time here. One of them is by year four, you need to be competitive. And generally, if you look at the greatest coaches in the last 15 years in the SEC, they're pretty competitive pretty quickly. Um, yep. So we'll get to that. But, but the other side of this is the uncompetitive nature of the games. And you and I have talked a lot about this. He, he's lost 12 times in the SEC. 11 of those are by, by three touchdowns or more. That doesn't include the West Virginia loss. And to put that in context, you had some some you did some digging and some research on the Doolander era and the Butch Jones era. And so put the uncompetitive nature of the football team in context for everybody. It really is startling to me, Braden. So 30 games in now for Jeremy Pruitt. 12 of those losses have been by 21 or more points, as you mentioned, 11 in the SEC and then the West Virginia game, which was the season opener in 2018. In Derek Dooley's first 30 games, he lost six by 21 or more points. In Butch Jones' first 30 games, he lost six by 21 or more points. So Jeremy Pruitt has as many losses by 21 or more points as Derek Dooley and Butch Jones 
combined. And one thing, one reason I think that that is significant is because I've heard so much about how Jeremy Pruitt is just a much better coach than those guys. And uh, X's and O's going up to the, to the board, I would absolutely take Jeremy Pruitt versus those guys. But there also is so much more to that uh, than that to being a head coach in the SEC, right? And to this point, to see Tennessee struggle so much, and by the way, year three for Butch Jones, he didn't have any of the, all of those losses came in the first two seasons. Year three, Butch Jones lost Alabama by five points. Jeremy Pruitt just lost by 31 points. So one, one quick response I saw from fans who were not happy about that statistic were, well, you need to provide context here. This is not fair. And I think the context makes it look worse. Did I miss Butch Jones inheriting a really good program when he took <laughs> over at the end of the 2012 season? I know that in 2017, Butch Jones did not win a game in the SEC. Neither did Derek Dooley. He was 0-7 when he was fired at the end of the 12th season. And then Jim Chaney took over in the interim and beat Kentucky, which was also firing Joker Phillips as the head coach. So Butch Jones walked into a program that had not been in the top 25 in five years. Butch Jones had Tennessee in the top 25 at the end of the 2015 and 16 seasons. So I, I could argue that Tennessee's program was in better shape when Jeremy Pruitt took over. And I know that they had the athletic director change as well, but I was told at the time that Philip Fulmer took, taking over was a really good thing for UT. The, the point is that Butch Jones took over a program that was in rough shape. Jeremy Pruitt took over a program that was in rough shape, and his results to this point have clearly been worse than Butch Jones. What does that move, move, mean moving forward? I don't know, but is it not obvious that things have to get better? And then when Jeremy Pruitt says that they're closing the gap, and to him that's pretty clear, maybe it is, and he should absolutely believe that. He needs to be telling recruits that. But at some point, he has to show that that's the case. You can't continue to say it without the results. Yeah, was that the was that the Josh Dobbs leading in the fourth quarter in Tuscaloosa game where where you know, yeah, I think, was it Derrick Henry that had the big the big game in the fourth quarter where they won the game to come back and win? A anyway, we 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 did. Yeah, Alabama Alabama turned it on. W one other item I, I keep seeing and hearing. Well, Butch Jones had Josh Dobbs at quarterback. Jeremy Pruitt doesn't have somebody like that at quarterback, and that is true. But a couple of things: one, Butch Jones signed. Josh Dobbs. He was committed to Arizona State, and Butch Jones flipped him to Tennessee and and developed him into a pretty good college quarterback. And uh, and now he's playing in the NFL. But also in those first thirty games, Josh Dobbs wasn't playing that much. And when he did, he he was a freshman sophomore from part of that time. So uh, it's just the. All of this to me is just frustration that has built up over time from those previous regimes. It's there now. And that's why this is a really critical yeah. point. But also, isn't it a statement that we're saying, man, this Arkansas game is a really important game for Jeremy Pruitt? Yeah, the, the night they drove old Kiffy down. That, that's how I'm, I'm marking the beginning of this entire endeavor for Tennessee fans. Uh, so g getting back to uh, what you were just talking about uh, with, with Jeremy Pruitt being technically a better coach, let's say, and I, and I agree with you. I, if you told me between those three guys, like who could I have go up and scheme my, my team's game plan this week, it would be Jeremy Pruitt. I, I'm okay no with that. And there's still plenty of time for, for Jeremy Pruitt. They were terrible at the beginning of last year and they turned it on and were good at the end of, at the end of last season. So there's still opportunity for that to happen, especially with the schedule now, you know, the way it is, but there's also a lot of tough games left on the schedule so then if we like him better as the scheme guy as the coach itself you know you can point to some of the little things like how to answer questions about recruiting in his first recruiting class like all the way back to the first couple of press conferences how he's handled media access to players I think he handled the racial injustice and pandemic issues of the summer actually very very well leaning into some of that stuff I think is an advantage for him he's recruited very well so so what is it then that is missing 
from this large equation that isn't just an X's and O's scheme. It's all this other stuff that makes you a CEO in the SEC. What is it that you're not seeing from Jeremy Pruitt's sort of entire resume as the head coach at Tennessee? Well, I'm not seeing the player development that I anticipated with the players that he has signed. In 2019, Jeremy Pruitt signed a number of really talented players. The one guy who has shined and lived up to that billing would be Henry Tooto at linebacker. And he, he had a tough game on Saturday. He's a really good player, right? I think everybody's going to yeah. agree on that. But who else from that class has really shown to be a high-level player? Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But in, uh, in two years, you typically want to see your five-star, high four-star players start to merge, especially when they get an opportunity. Maybe that happens with Wanya Morris, Darnell Wright, Quavaris Crouch, Ramel Keaton. But those highest-rated players have not developed to the level that I think a lot of people probably anticipated with Jeremy Pruitt. Have coaching changes affected that? That's the other thing that stands out. There has been a lot of coaching turnover since Jeremy Pruitt took over. And I know you can point to Nick Saban in Alabama and the coaching turnover that takes place there. That's Alabama. That's Nick Saban as the head coach. And that is a roster full of developed, talented players with the next line coming in each and every year. And by the way, they recruited a higher level than Tennessee. So that the next freshman class is better than Tennessee's freshman class. So I would start there. I would start with the coaching staff, Jeremy Pruitt, the guys that they brought in, Quarterback development has been a question. Jim Cheney was paid a lot of money to come in. And by the way, not be the quarterback's coach, but he's obviously involved with what they're doing at that position. And Tennessee is still playing Jarrett Garantano after having signed J.T. Shrout, Brian Maurer, and Harrison Bailey. And Bailey's just a true freshman, a highly touted one, of course. But at some point, your guys have to start taking on bigger roles and having more success because go back to year one against Alabama at halftime, Brayton. Jeremy Pruitt was talking on the Vault Network and on the TV broadcast about guys not doing what they're expected to, and he's going to go recruit more players. He said it during his first year, I'm going to go bring in guys. Well, yeah. the, the guys that helped lead the way last year, Daniel Batuli, Daryl Taylor, Jawan Jennings, Nigel Warrior, <laughs> they don't play for Tennessee anymore. Trey Smith does. Josh Palmer does. But they need more Jeremy Pruitt guys to step up, and that needs to start happening very quickly. And, and by the way, maybe it does in the next couple of weeks. They have two weeks to get ready, and maybe young players get more practice opportunity. But uh, that is one thing that I think we're still waiting on is, uh, is his guys to play bigger roles. Yeah, all those guys you just mentioned, Butch Jones recruits by and large. What, what does the relationship with Philip Fulmer, the athletic director, have to do with Jeremy Pruitt's employment status. I, I, listen, I think it's silly to talk about, you know, hot seat conversation. I still, it's 2020. Everybody sort of gets a pass for how much stress and adversity and disruption that they're all dealing with. Who knows what's going on behind the scenes, which is another story altogether on a different podcast. But what, what do you make of that relationship and how does that affect the way the administration views the head football coach in year four, let's say next year? Well, Philip Fulmer is very much invested in Jeremy Pruitt, isn't he? And I mean that literally because Tennessee, a little more than a month ago, gave Jeremy Pruitt a $400,000 annual raise, which goes into effect next year. And that was, of course, with the anticipation that this season would be better. And that's why these next five games are going to be really important, I think, for how Tennessee feels about that raise that was given. Because if Tennessee has to start paying him a lot more money after a season that was really disappointing – and one that would at least cause fans to start to say, hey, is this the right guy for the job? That creates a problem, doesn't it? And uh, back uh, earlier this year, Philip Fulmer was talking to a group of Tennessee fans, and I think stated it for the crowd a little bit, but about how Tennessee was about to start uh, kicking everybody's butt in the SEC. And <laughs> uh, the, the opposite has happened to this point. So uh, Philip Fulmer, again, has uh, 
He has very much supported Jeremy Pruitt. And by the way, when you're talking about an investment, it's not just in the head coach. That is a highly paid staff. Tennessee just fired a defensive line coach who was given a $1.3 million contract earlier in 2020 and then is fired in the middle of COVID the same week that Tennessee is confirming that they're having budget cuts to save money from yeah. all that they're losing. So uh, it, it, this is Philip Fulmer's guy. And Philip Fulmer came in saying, I've got to fix football. And he asked Jeremy Pruitt to do it. And that's why it needs to happen pretty soon. But I, I'll also say all, everything that I'm saying here, firing the head coach and, and having another change, I think would be disastrous for Tennessee football. Yeah. They, just, they need better results. That's why I stress it so much. <laughs> be, be better at football. Uh, yeah. it, what's interesting about the, the relationship is, uh, and I'm curious what you think about this, because I don't think there was a lot of talk early, like how – how hands-on will Philip Fulmer be with the program? This is a first-time head coach who's never really uh, had anything like this on his plate before, Jeremy Pruitt, that is. And some of the things you're seeing, like, again, allegedly firing a coach at halftime or, you know, giving extensions or hiring Jim Chaney, which I want to get to as well, you know, how you handle a press conference, those types of things. Generally, that would be an area where you would think Philip Fulmer could be helpful how hands-on should he be not not is he but how hands-on should he be because it feels like some of the things he's Jeremy Pruitt has done little things are, are things that could have been avoided if there perhaps was a guy who knew how to be a head coach working above him yeah you would think that it would help and that was thought to be the case when Jeremy Pruitt walked in and Jeremy Pruitt said hey I've got Philip Fulmer who won in the SEC this is great for me and I don't know how much communication there is now in regards to what Jeremy Pruitt's doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I think Philip Fulmer was involved early on. And I actually, I think, got a call from the SEC at one point about how involved he might be during practices on the field. <laughs> but uh, the, the one thing that you can point back to that helped Philip Fulmer during his tenure was the continuity he had on the coaching staff. There was change with the offensive coordinator, of course, with David Cutcliffe leaving, Randy Sanders for a while, then David Cutcliffe coming back. But uh, a lot of those assistant coaches were there for a long time. I think that helped in recruiting. I think that helped with uh, what, what they wanted the program to be, the culture, all of that stuff. That's something else we're still talking about. We're still talking about how hard guys are working and watching film. And doesn't that come back to culture? And why is that a topic in Jeremy Pruitt's third year? So Philip Vollmer should be an asset there for Jeremy Pruitt, considering his history and his success. But Jeremy Pruitt's history is also elsewhere. His history is at Alabama, and he saw coaching turnover, and he saw what they did in, in practice and pregame. Uh, I mean, how about this one? Will Overstreet on uh, Sunday on a TV show I do in Knoxville was very unhappy with what they do pregame, uh, where they, they go hard for a few minutes. And Trey Smith got rolled up on and had to limp off in pregame warm-ups against Alabama and maybe that works at Alabama because if one of your five stars limp off you have another four or five star run onto the field Tennessee doesn't have that right now so uh, what Jeremy Pruitt has brought to Tennessee uh, is not Alabama and, and that's where they're trying to yeah. to get to in the future but uh, that's still very much in the future yeah it feels like there's a lot of sharp corners that need to be sanded down a little bit is what it feels like and that's sort of been the case since the beginning but also to be expected with a first-year coach uh, Jim Chaney I'm going to try to not ask you about the quarterback because I just don't think there's an answer there. If there was, we would have already known about it and he'd be playing yep. right now. So I want to ask you about Jim Chaney, though. I, I, I honestly, Josh, I was shocked. You know, people's reaction, especially in the Kentucky game, people's reaction to Jim Chaney, I was shocked that people were shocked. Like th this was an unimaginative hire, a guy that we knew exactly what he was, probably a decent floor, but a pretty low ceiling, not an upside pick, not a creative pick. When he made the hire, Georgia fans certainly weren't all that upset when he left Georgia. What, why are people shocked that this is the Jim Chaney offense? Like, why is that a thing that people, we know what Jim Chaney is. We've seen him for over a decade. Well, I think 
a lot of people just expected better results starting at quarterback. Uh, we don't have to dive into it, but just the play of that position, I think fans expected more, and it just hasn't been there. Uh, and I did one thing I expected. I thought um, that there would be a better job in the usage of the running backs and what they do offensively, N not to call Ty Chandler and Eric Gray, Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, DeAndre Swift. I would not put them in the same group in terms of talent, but usage, I thought we would see similar to what we did a few years ago when those three guys were together within the roster. And um, maybe that's me thinking a little bit too, too much no, about I, it. But those guys are good enough to be used like that. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're two of Tennessee's best players, right? Uh, but at quarterback, I, th I think it comes back to that. I think fans are frustrated with Jim Chaney because they're not seeing better quarterback play. I think a lot of what uh, Tennessee was doing on Saturday that was frustrating in terms of the lack of uh, aggression on offense and how conservative Tennessee was, third and seven, hey, let's run. And if we don't get it, oh, well. Um, I think that's, uh, that's Jim Chaney um, doing a, a lot of what Jeremy Pruitt wants because Jim Chaney's fine with doing that as well. And it just it wasn't close to working. It didn't give Tennessee a shot. Not that Tennessee had much yeah. of one, but uh, if the idea was, hey, let's not get beat by a lot, well, you lost by 31 with that approach. So um, I, I think a lot of it is just the buy-in and uh, remembering Tyler Bray in that 2012 offense and how good it was and expecting those kinds of results again. And I would say, one, Tennessee doesn't really have the personnel for that. Uh, they, they don't have the quarterback for that, and they have not had the quarterback development for that behind Jarrett Garantano. That's why we're still having this conversation. Uh, all right, real quickly to wrap it up here, Josh Ward, of course, thank you for joining us, WNML in Knoxville. Of course, the Locked On Vols podcast as well. All right, so five more games. They turned around their season last year. What does this conversation you and I are having look like after five more games against, oh, by the way, a couple of teams that look worse than we thought and a couple of teams that look better than we thought? My preseason prediction for Tennessee was five and five. I think that's still very much on the table. It's only on the table if you beat Arkansas. So these next two weeks are really important to make sure you still have the buy-in. Can you beat Arkansas? I don't like Tennessee's chances against A&M. So I think that Auburn game becomes critical. Tennessee should, of course, beat Vanderbilt. And why would I pick Tennessee to beat Florida? So uh, <laughs> Ar Arkansas and Auburn, can you get those two? I think Tennessee absolutely can. Tennessee beat South Carolina. It was a close one. Tennessee beat Missouri. And I think uh, when you look at those two games, there is plenty to draw from those two performances to get wins against the teams that I just mentioned. That gets you to five and five. Does that have uh, fans overjoyed? Well, if you end the season getting blown out by Florida, no. If you end the season with a loss against Florida, Florida, but it's close. You've obviously gotten better, in my opinion. Uh, if you win the game, well, then that really flips this conversation uh, from today completely around, right? So uh, these next two weeks are really important because you're right. Last year, we saw from a buy-in perspective, from a, a work ethic, from even player development, Nigel Warrior got better as the season went along. There were people saying, hey, bench Nigel Warrior after a month. By the end of the season, he's in all SEC safety. So if they get better play and they win those games where yeah, it's, it's is it 50-50? I think overall, Tennessee Tennessee has a good shot to beat Arkansas. Tennessee has a reasonable shot to beat uh, Auburn on the road. And if you do that, then you can come out of this okay, finish up well in recruiting, and just be better next year. So this is yeah. still salvageable, but they have to be better. Yep, I, I agree. And at some point, we're all going to kick back at the end of 2020 and just go, thank God I got to watch some football games. <laughs> so at some point, we'll get, have some perspective about how awful this year has been. For yeah, and before the season, I said, hey, let's appreciate football and, and just march through. But I also, I appreciate the craziness of college football and, <laughs> and the complaining while it's, it's repetitive in Knoxville, for sure. It does bring a little bit of normalcy to what we're hearing in yeah. college football. Being destroyed on Twitter for your takes is a return to normalcy, Josh. That, that's where we are. Yeah, the, the DMs are not a, a pretty sight. Josh, always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for joining us. We do appreciate your insight. You got it. Thanks, Brad.
Special thanks to Josh Ward from WNML in Knoxville, one of the best in the business. Actually got my start working with Josh Ward in a college radio station like 15 years ago. So known that guy a really, really long time, and I think he's as fair and as balanced against uh, Tennessee athletics as you're ever going to get. So a special thanks to Josh Ward there. All right, coming up next on the show before Aaron and I wrap things up at the end, Dave Matter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch covering the Missouri Tigers going to give you a thorough breakdown of everything Eli Drinkwitz as well as the big game against the Florida Gators coming up right here on Fringe Element. Dave, first of all, thanks for giving us a few minutes of time here on Fringe Element. Let's just get started with where this team was at the start of the season and what you've seen since then and now with a win over LSU, uh, a, a really excellent performance on defense against Kentucky, sort of what have you learned about the new coaching regime? Man, this was a, it was a big mystery going into the year because at, Missouri brought back a defense that was pretty good last year. But without a head coach, Barry Odom, who was a defensive guy, you know, you just didn't know how that group would, how that group would transition. And then the offense was a complete mystery. I mean, we, we couldn't watch preseason practices. They were closed to the media. They only got three spring practices in. Completely new system, new quarterbacks, head coach who is all offense. You know, he doesn't really do much with the defense at all. So that part, we really had no idea what to expect. And then the first game, you know, you don't even know who the quarterback is for sure going to be until the Alabama kickoff. And Sean Robinson was, was fine. He completed a high percentage of his passes, but didn't really do anything to make you think, wow, this guy is a, a game changer necessarily. Maybe somebody they could build on. And then from there, you know, the Tennessee game was a loss, but offensively they moved the ball really well when, once Connor Bazelak came in. And then it's looked like a different team since then. And really, it looked like a different team in the LSU game and in the Kentucky game. LSU was a shootout up and down the field, throwing the ball like crazy. Kentucky, they're like, okay, um, the only way to beat Kentucky is to out-Kentucky them. And that's exactly what Missouri do. They just dominated them defensively and offensively possessed the ball pretty much the entire game and just did enough to win to outscore them. So I think it's been pretty impressive coaching to see how they've progressed and improved and then just to see them sort of adapt to different kind of game styles and be able to win either way it was really impressive to me to me the big the big change was at quarterback it's hard not to to talk about that I, I thought I saw something from him when he played against Tennessee coming in for Sean Robinson you could see the ball come out of his hand a little differently he was making the right reads and then the LSU thing happens uh, obviously, Kentucky, a very good defensive team, so you didn't see the sort of the full display. I'm kind of pissed that I didn't get to see him against Vandy because that would have been an opportunity <laughs> for him to, yeah. to fill up the stat sheet. You're not a, a scout, and I'm not a scout, yeah. but we both know what scouts like. Yeah. And I feel like Connor Bazelak has all the things that a scout would like. I, am I wrong with that assessment on looking at the, the frame and the arm and the size and, and all that stuff? Is that – am I out – out left no, field. no, I agree. I mean, he gets rid of the ball so quick. He is not a super athlete back there, but he makes up for it by just not getting into trouble. I mean, there was a couple plays, one stood out against Kentucky where the, the pressure was coming. I think it was a, like a, a cornerback blitz and it was his blind side. And he just stepped right up into the pocket to avoid the guy and completed a pass down the seam, middle of the field for about 25 yards. And uh, it wasn't his first read necessarily. I think he explained that later. He just has a great feel for, for everything back there. And he's just super accurate. I mean, that, you need that in today's game. I mean, the quarterbacks, the best, most accurate quarterbacks there are so much more accurate than they were in the past. And he's right up there along the top tier in the – it was a small sample size, but it's a growing sample size now of what he's done this year. And uh, he, he just seems to have all those tools. He can, he can throw it. He's got the arm strength for sure. 
you know, even though he's not a dynamic athlete, he came from that wishbone offense at his high school in Dayton, Ohio, and he's got a, they can run option plays and he's not dynamic, super fast quarterback on those, but he knows exactly what to do, when to do it. And he's really comfortable running those type of plays. And that falls into, you know, the, the zone read stuff that everybody runs to some degree. So yeah, I think he's got, he's got a lot of it there and he's got the intangible parts, which you sort of pick up on when you talk to him. I mean, the kid doesn't have a pulse. Like you talk to him after the game, (laughs) you wouldn't even know they won. And he just, so he doesn't get too high or too low at all. And if you're a quarterback's coach, it's probably kind of the demeanor you're looking for, especially for a young guy. Everything he experiences is new. This is all first for him, everything he's going through right now. You mentioned the style of the win over LSU versus the style of the win over Kentucky. And that, that's where I wanted to go with you on the defensive side of the ball. They allow four yards per play, a, a, sort of a season best for the Missouri defense. Kentucky is the best rushing team in the SEC entering that game. You hold them to under 100 yards, 50 yards passing. I mean, it's actually a remarkable performance the job the defense did what was the difference and sort of what which of those two styles do you think we're going to see from Missouri moving forward yeah you know I, I thought against Kentucky they just they kept everything in front of them they didn't let anything break out for a long run they had they gave up one touchdown pass it was 26 yards so that was half that was more than half the the uh, passing yards right there they just didn't commit penalties on defense. They just they just played a really, really sound game. And they got more important than anything, they got off the field on third down. I mean, Kentucky only ran 36 plays. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. that is such a small number for today's game. Even I look back in Missouri's box scores going back to the 60s, it's the fewest plays they, the defense has been on the field for a game in a conference game going back to like 1966, even back wow. in the 60s, you're playing 60, 70 snaps on defense. So they did all the right things. That The two sides complement each other really well. You're going to face more explosive offenses, not in every game, but most games in Kentucky. I mean, they like to play it slow and be really methodical, don't have much of a passing game. So, you know, when you face – they face Florida this week, there's going to be, you know, more tempo. There's going to be more – better receivers, better quarterback back there. Heck, even when they play Arkansas, I mean, the way they're they're more functional on offense. Mississippi State, they've still got. But I, I do think they took something away from how they finished that LSU game. You know, they had a goal line stand, first and goal at the one with a minute to go, and they made four straight stops. And, you know, some of that, that confidence kind of carried over, I think, from the way they played against Kentucky. And uh, we'll see. I mean, it's a they've got a, a freshman cornerback, and he just seems to get a little better every game. So I think, you know, he's, he's going to be a lot better in game six and seven than he was in one and two. So, yeah, I, I think things are coming around on that side of the ball for sure. All right, let's glance at the Florida game. And for those that do not know and have not studied the longstanding history of the Missouri-Florida rivalry, there is some weird shit in this rivalry. It, yeah, it, yeah. It is very strange. Missouri has won a game by like three touchdowns and like 119 yards of offense. It's just been a weird series. Can you try to explain what, the, what, what has made the series weird? And, and I actually think we're probably in for something strange again this weekend against Florida. Yeah, even the games, the games in Gainesville, like in 2012, Missouri's first year in the league, they weren't very good, and they had a shot to win that game uh, in the fourth quarter. Then 2014, they go there, and that's the crazy one where Missouri had like two punt returns, a kickoff return, an interception return, no <laughs> offense whatsoever. And that might have been the game that got Muschamp fired because the crowd was booing him pretty bad there in the fourth quarter. Missouri just couldn't do anything on offense and it didn't matter. They just, they just right. had that game racked up. It was such a strange game. And Missouri has played well there before. Two years ago, they go down there and Missouri was coming off the Kentucky game where they lost on the final play of the game and untimed down. It, w- it's, it was seemed like it was really bad for Barry Odom in his future. And 
that's the kind of game that could get you fired. Everybody get everybody said that after the Kentucky game. Then they go down to Florida, and Florida's getting things figured out under Dan Mullen, and Missouri just pulls a stunner and wins that game. Drew Locke, probably the best game he's ever played ever played at Missouri. So, yeah, a lot of surprises in, in this series. And Missouri's generally played pretty well against Florida, even the games they've lost. I can't recall a whole too many that were, you know, where they had no shot at all to win. Um, they've, they've been competitive. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect anything less this time. Can you explain to non-Mizzou fans what, what their relationship has been with, with Barry Odom, how it ended, mm-hmm. how they hired Eli Drinkowitz, you know, how it's now evolved through half a season, watching Barry Odom do some really good stuff yeah. for Arkansas. Just sort of, can you try to explain the psyche of a Mizzou fan through that, and through that I don't know, the last like 12 months or so of, of what they've had to kind of experience? Yeah, it's weird. You know, he... 2019, they go six and six, and it just seemed like they should have been better than that. They felt, everybody felt like they had more talent than that. Um, you know, they had that uh, the NCAA penalty came down like late in the year where they weren't going to go to the postseason, and then it turns out, I mean, they would have gone at six and six. They would have gone to a bowl game, but it just seemed like they had nothing to play for once that that came out, and it, the program just kind of lost all momentum. That that was the the phrase that AD Jim Sterk used a lot when they decided to, to fire Barry. They just felt like they just weren't. They weren't good enough against the best teams, and they, they certainly weren't beating the, the teams they should beat all the time either. The year started off with this really bad loss at Wyoming. You know, they could have kept him. You go 6-6. Six and six. He was 500 as a coach over four years. And we've seen coaches with worse records keep their job. But I also don't think anybody really felt like it was an injustice at all that he lost his job. So then they go out in the hiring process. You know, I, I reported this at the time. Jim Sturt comes back to Missouri's board of curators, which is like they're uh, d- decide, you know, the people that decide the hire and approve it once once he makes a suggestion. And, and the candidates were not all that enticing. It was Skip Holtz. Um, it was Jeff Munkin from Army. And it was Blake Anderson at Arkansas State. All, all guys who I think are like well-respected in the coaching world, those were three search firm candidates. That's what they were. Safe hires, no baggage, uh, respectable guys. But nobody who I think fans would be like, oh, wow, we got this guy. He's got incredible upside. And that was, that was what was relayed back to Jim Sterk. And he was basically told, hey, it's not that we're not going to approve of any of these hires, but go out and get somebody a little more exciting. So Eli Drinkwitz was next, was on the list, and uh, you know Arkansas was really interested in him too. He was from Arkansas. He's leading Appalachian State in his only year as a head coach to a phenomenal record, and they put a really strong sales pitch on him. They flew the university president, the chancellor, several curators. They flew them all on a private jet out to the uh, right after the Sun Belt Championship game and put on the full court press. And, you know, I think it was kind of reported at the time and I was kind of hinted at that Arkansas was had a contingent there also. And he, he listened to Missouri's side. And then, you know, everything from then has been really well received. I mean, this guy brought instant charisma, energy, excitement on the recruiting trail, on the field, and kind of the jolt that this program needed. I mean, everybody liked Barry Odom. He was a Missouri assistant for a long time, Missouri player, very popular, but the program just didn't have that buzz that you don't necessarily always need it, but this program needed some, especially after the Gary Pinkle years where they just won consistently. And the expectation was you win all the time, not necessarily for a national championship, but you you never have bad seasons and uh, they just weren't doing enough. So there's been a lot of excitement there. And now you throw in this layer with Arkansas is quote unquote, Missouri's rival. (laughs) They're they're assigned to be their rival. They play on that, usually play the the week of Thanksgiving and Missouri fans don't, they don't like Arkansas. They don't, it's, it's not like Missouri's rivalry with Kansas, you know, that was a century old. And I don't know if Arkansas fans really consider Missouri their rival. They consider 
Texas or Texas A&M or LSU their rival. Missouri's like fifth on the list probably. But there's not a lot of fondness between the two. And then, then Barry takes this job at Arkansas, and they're doing really well, and he's getting a ton of credit for it. So <laughs> Missouri fans, it's, it's weird for them because anytime somebody in the Mizzou media, and most of us, I, I, I respect and I have a good rapport with Barry. I, I, I like the guy. I've known him. We were in college at the same time at Mizzou, so we've known each other for years. You put any little tweet out that says, hey, look at this Arkansas defense, man. They're, <laughs> they're doing really well, and people – the immediate response is, but he was a horrible head coach. <laughs> well, yeah, well, he wasn't good, but he's, he's all, he's could always coach defense and nobody is surprised by what he's doing at Arkansas. Right. So it's, it's weird. I think fans have a, um, they have a hard time kind of accepting what he's doing is really good after he left Missouri's program and not, maybe not the best shape. Well, it, it is fascinating. Cause like you could, I could see an Eli Drinkwitz program with a Barry Odom as a DC yeah. and, thinking, and thinking that's a, that could be a really good Missouri coaching staff. Hey, listen to your point about injecting energy and passion and charisma. You also have a young freshman quarterback now, retro yeah. freshman quarterback now who, who needs a, a system that's going to play to his strengths. And that's what you have now with the head coach. So it, Hey, if it adds juice to the Arkansas, Missouri, but uh, hopefully it adds some juice and it should be fun. Define Eli Drinkwitz's philosophy real quickly, and then I'll let you get out of here. Offensive philosophy or just as a CEO building? Yeah, as a CEO of an SEC program, how would you describe the culture, the identity, the philosophy, all those buzzwords? You know, he, you got to build something, and that's, that's obvious. He's never really built a program on his own. He stepped into App State. They were, they were going pretty strong. He took it to another level, but he's never really built anything. But he, he talks a lot about getting the right players who really – are a good fit for Missouri, even if they are not necessarily the best recruits. And he's not selling the program short, but I think you kind of have to be realistic when you're at Missouri. You can't just chase the, all the five stars and expect that that's who you're going to get. Maybe one day, but not in 2020. So I think he has a realistic approach to it, but also he's got this philosophy too on offense, especially. I think it bleeds over to defense is he is going to adapt to whatever he has because we've seen it two weeks in a row now. I mean, it, He's, he's not going to say, hey, I've got this cookie-cutter system and you have to adapt to it or this program isn't going to work. He had two completely different game plans in those LSU and Kentucky games, and yeah. they come out win both. And I, I just thought it was really impressive. So it's his system for sure. It's got his – you know, there's, there's quirks to it that really I think he defines what his offense is going to be. But also he is not above, you know, at some place where he says, hey, it's my way or the highway on, on how this works. We're going to work around our talent. So I think he's just a smart coach. I think he sees, you know, the, he kind of reminds you a little bit of some of these really young NFL offensive-minded head coaches that we see out there. Um, he's a little bit more on the, the rah-rah side, a little more Dabo, you know, not so much just pure X's and O's. People ask me all the time, do, do I think he'll fit me? Would he want to go to the NFL? I don't know. I think he likes the recruiting stuff. I think he likes the, the rah-rah part of naming every day of the week a different nickname, you know, Toughness <laughs> Tuesday and Competition Wednesday and all that stuff. I don't know if that flies in the NFL as much. That's, that's McVay. See, that, that's not yeah. Shanahan or LaFleur. That's McVay. Yeah, yes. And I don't know. I think and McVay seems a little – he's cut differently than I think some of those yeah. standard NFL coaches. So, um, yeah, I think he's a, he's a perfect for a college system. And, um, and, and Missouri fans, I love him. I mean, the guy can do no wrong. There was literally, like, on message boards, talk about – they beat Kentucky and talk about giving him an extension. Like <laughs> he's got a six-year deal. I think he's, he think he's doing okay. It's the SEC, man. Every, every, <laughs> every day it's, it's quarter by quarter. Just ask Auburn, right. and, ask Auburn and Tennessee fans. Uh, right. Dave, always a pleasure, man. Do appreciate okay. it. Thank, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time. Anytime.
That was Dave Matter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch covering all things Missouri Tigers. They are a very relevant football team in 2020, Aaron, which is pretty cool. Not something we thought after two weeks of action. But no. no. But here they are, and you've made a very good case for them to be the fifth best team in the league right now. Thank you, Braden. You're welcome. Really good stuff from both those guys about giving you insight into what Missouri fans think and feel about Drinkowitz and Barry Odom, former head coach, and what Tennessee fans think and feel about Jeremy Pruitt and Uncle Phil, whatever the hell's going on in Knoxville. So part of the part of what we want to do on the show is, is take all SEC fans to all 14 campuses and show and give you a feel for what's going on in all those campuses. So hopefully you learn a little bit about uh, UT and a little bit about Mizzou today on the show. Learning things is good. So I have a question for you. Um, oh, God. Before we wrap the show, and again, rate, review, and subscribe. If we get to 50 genuine, honest, legitimate reviews, I'll do a drunken rant on Saturday night for those of you who want it. Only those of you who want it, though, I will do that for you. But you have now given us really dis- just desperate and and just utter despair from Tennessee fans. You've secretly recorded your drunken friends at an Alabama-Georgia game party yes. a couple of weeks ago. Two very interesting and fun parts of the show we hope you have enjoyed. What are you going to do next for everybody, Dugan? What's the next plan? Wow. You're just going to hmm? do me like that? Yeah. I don't know. It was a good surprise. You surprised me with some Tennessee despair. Well, now I think you're just getting greedy because, A, yep. not only did you just put me on the spot, yep. which... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know yet. Okay. Well, you got plenty of time before the weekend. Can you ask me like a better wrap up question than like putting me on the spot and not letting me say anything, which I don't know which creative ideas you've come up with lately. Mm, I mean, you do, you do some work around like regarding this show, I guess <laughs> you do things sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I edit it. I started the company, but it's a joke. It's your company. Um, but you haven't done anything like super creative. Like don't treat me this way. I don't deserve this. <laughs> Why? Why, why do you feel like you're being treated away? I think you've done a great job bringing two really interesting cuts to the show. I just care. The fans are clamoring, Aaron, for what's next. They just are clamoring for what's next. Well, they should. If they have any ideas, I'm open to it. <laughs> At the Aaron Dugan on Twitter. My booster seat is slipping. Are we almost done? <laughs> yes. Okay. Mercifully, we are. You Not can follow tall me. enough for my mic. You can follow me on Twitter as well. <laughs> At Braden Gall. Please rate, review, and subscribe the show. Please tell your friends. That is how we grow it. We hope you enjoy. We're going to cover all 14 teams. Enjoy week nine of SEC action. My name is Braden Gall. Her name is Aaron Dugan. This has been Fringe Element on the 440 Sports Network. Peace. Being a Tennessee fan is a lot like following the career of Britney Spears. Started off very hot and promising, and then she dumps the faithful good man in Justin Timberlake, a.k.a. Philip Fulmer, and goes for the backup dancer, a.k.a. Lane Kiffin. That doesn't work out. He leaves her. And then she shaves her head, a.k.a. hiring Butch Jones and Derek Dooley. But then, years later, finally seems to have gotten things right, and you'll see good pictures of her. But then she'll post something awful, and you think, wow, not not bad. But... At the end of the day, it's like listening to the hit single one more time because it needs to be.